humans are living organisms. We're anti-fragile. We gain from chaos. We gain from stress. Now, if we were machines like a car, your car brakes wear out over time. Your computer keyboard wears out over time. They are fragile. With enough stress, they'll break. But living organisms, as you exercise them, as you stress them, they become stronger and healthier. That was Bernie Clark, and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Dharma Talkers, my people, thank you for tuning in. I'm thrilled to share this week's episode of Dharma Talk because my guest holds a special place in my heart. Although we've yet to meet in person, that's got to happen soon, Bernie, if you're listening. Bernie played an influential role in my journey as a teacher. Because when I first started teaching, I was tasked with filling some gaps in the schedule at my studio for the yin classes. So without any formal training, I did my best. I picked up a copy of what I called the Green Book, which of course is Bernie Clark's The Complete Guide to Yin Yoga. And the rest is, as they say, history. In this conversation, Bernie and I talk about yin yoga and much more. But first, let me make my appeal. Please subscribe to Dharma Talk if you haven't done so already. It just takes a second and that way you get the new episodes sent to you every Thursday. Also, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever directory you listen on. Helps others find the show and that way they can all benefit just as you have. If there's someone in your life that you think could really benefit from hearing this episode, then please share it with them. And finally, you can always support the show by making a financial contribution. It really helps. The show is costly, but I love doing it. So please support me in this project. Make a donation at henrywins.com donate. As usual, I've got a few announcements to share with you before we get into the show. Do you want to level up your yoga practice? Well, check out the Henry Yoga app, my brand new 40 day, 40 minutes daily program for anyone looking to get serious about yoga. Sign up and get your first two classes free at henryyoga.com. Yogis, my last workshop in New York City before moving away is coming right up. And that is a handstand training workshop for all levels at Lighthouse Yoga School happening on Sunday, November 3rd. If you don't have a handstand yet or you're very new, I'm going to help you get set up so that you can overcome that fear and develop a practice. And for those of you who have a handstand, we can work on refining your line and playing with new shapes. So it's really available to everyone and I hope to see you there. After I leave New York, I have two rocket and backbending weekends coming up. First one at Ashtanga Yoga Puerto Rico, that's in San Juan, and the next one at the Yoga Dojo in my hometown of Richmond, Virginia. If you come down to Puerto Rico, make the time to stay for an extra week because after my weekend, I'm participating in a rocket and dharma immersion, kind of a urban retreat with Baba Rocket, David Kyle, and Pat McLeaf, and it's going to be amazing. I'm not teaching in it, but I totally advocate for it. I'm so excited. And if you mention me when you sign up, you can get $50 off. Those will be my final workshops for 2019. And then in January 2020, my wife Veronica and I are going on a four-week tour through Europe. So you can find the details for all of these workshops at my website, henrywins.com events. Go there, find out more, and sign up. Yogis, if you are looking for the perfect way to wrap up 2019 and lay a golden foundation for a beautiful 2020 to come, then please join me and my wife, Veronica Lombo, for our seven-day retreat to Bali. We're calling it Divine Connection because that's our vision for this retreat, that you'll be able to take the time to step away from your typical environment, step away from your social conditioning and your responsibilities and get honed into the divine light within you. And how do we hope to achieve that? Well, every morning is going to begin with noble silence. This is prime time for self-reflection, self-inquiry and inner work. 
Also, we will have a group meditation every day and two yoga classes, one more rigorous vinyasa class and one more restorative hatha class. We're going to take care of all the food for you. You'll be provided three vegan, plant-based, and refined sugar-free meals a day. And we've also got some exciting adventures and excursions lined up, all included. Basically, we have an amazing experience lined up for you, something totally transformative and empowering. You just have to get yourself to Bali, and then we'll take you through the rest. If this sounds appealing, please head over to henrywins.com slash Bali, and you can find all the details there. Now let's talk about Bernie. Bernie Clark has been traveling the yogic path for over 40 years starting with a daily meditation practice that he established in his mid-20s in order to deal with growing stress. In his early 40s, he was introduced into the physical practices of Hatha Yoga, which assisted him greatly in his meditation practice. Throughout his first career in high-tech business, he continued to feed this intense curiosity about psychology, mythology, anatomy, and philosophy. Today, Bernie is a yoga teacher and published author, offering classes, teacher trainings, and workshops in Vancouver, Canada. So, like I said, in this conversation, we go pretty deep into the whole topic of yin yoga, but that's not all we talk about. We have kind of a philosophical discussion about what the term even means. For example, what's the difference between yin yoga and restorative yoga? And basically, we arrive on the idea that how you label yin or yang will always be subjective and relative. Bernie also talks about this concept of fragility and anti-fragility and why humans are designed to benefit from stress. And Bernie busts some very common myths about ligaments, tendons, and the harder tissues of our anatomy that have been floating around the yoga scene for a long time. So be sure to stick around until the very end for that wisdom might change the way you think about your practice forever. Now, if this episode resonates with you and you want to go deeper, go to dharmatalk.show and type Bernie in the search bar, and you'll find all the notes and links for this episode, including timestamps to pertinent points in the conversation and a link to Bernie's recommended book. You can always find a running list of every book ever recommended on Dharma Talk on my website as well. So if you're looking for your next read, then head over to henrywins.com books and just pick one out. Without further ado, please enjoy my interview with the legend, Bernie Clark. Bernie Clark, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, Henry. Thanks for the invite. It is absolutely my pleasure. Um, you know, before we uh, got on the call today, when we were emailing back and forth, I mentioned to you that when I first started teaching yoga, um, I read your green yin yoga book. And um, so that your, your book and your teaching has a special place in my heart. Definitely can't call myself a yin yoga expert, but I'm hoping that's one of the things that we can talk about today. So sure. I appreciate you coming on. I always like to invite people to the inside of yoga, so that's great. Well, I always start this with the same opening question, and I would love for you to answer that. So first, what does the word dharma mean to you, and what is your dharma as you understand it today? Okay, well, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. That's There's, a doozy. We go right in. Yeah, I could see maybe three or four different definitions of dharma, so it kind of depends. I hang out with a lot of engineers in my my career and they always like to define their terms so when you say dharma there's the buddhist dharma the, the kind of the canon of the buddhist teachings mm -hmm. which is summed up in the three jewels of buddhism the dharma the sangha and the buddha himself yes. uh, and then there's the god the the god dharma who shows up both in hindu and buddhist uh, mythology and then there's the uh one of the three pillars of uh, hindu society which was the the varna your caste karma the reincarnation and the dharma your social duty you know you're born there's the whole story of the Bhagavad gita is you're born to do this certain thing you're born to be a king you're born to be an accountant that's your dharma and you don't question that you just do it to the degree you can and then there's kind of a modern dharma beatnik type thing the dharma bums where no no you're not trying to follow society's role for you you got to figure out what your own role is 
Uh, so I'm not really sure which dharma you're referring to, but I think most people in the West, when they talk about their own dharma, they're really talking about what they feel will give their life meaning or purpose, as opposed to the more classical Indian, this is what you're born to do, this is your dharma, you're an accountant, and you don't think of doing anything other than being an accountant. So I'm not sure which one of those four you kind of have in mind. But. Well, I appreciate the the survey view of the different terms. You know, everybody tends to come in with their own background and it is a loaded term. Yeah. I've had Buddhist teachers come on and speak to, as you mentioned, the, the term Dharma as it's situated in the three jewels of Buddhism. But most people tend to interpret it in terms of what is, yeah, what is the path or, or role that I and choosing to step into, not so much what is right. assigned to me, although that tends to be kind of a back and forth balance for most people in their lives, a certain degree of control and a certain degree of choice. That's always going to be the dilemma between you, your personal goals and society's goals. I'm reminded uh, Joseph Campbell, who was a guy that influenced me greatly with his teachings, American mythologist of the last century. He once pointed out the... Um, inauguration speech by John F. Kennedy in 1960, where he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, that's that's the voice of Dharma. That's society saying, this is what you're supposed to do. But on the other hand, we have all our media and our, our heroes in the movies, they're all trying to figure out what their role in life is and what they should do and you know, forget mother and father, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And so you have this push and pull between personal wants and societal wants. But, you know, there, there's these four aims of life that's talked about in Indian philosophy. Dharma is number one, which is your role in life that you're born to do. Kama, which is pleasure. Artha, which is kind of competitiveness, uh, getting ahead. And then the fourth one is moksha, or moksha, liberation, freedom. And in the West, we have a different interpretation of freedom than they do in the East. In the West, we have this idea that freedom is license. You're, you're, you're free to drive a car when you're 16. You're free to vote for whoever you want. You're free to go and buy whatever type of beer you want. So in our view, freedom is license to do what I want. But in the East, moksha or freedom is very different than that. It's freedom from want. So I don't have to want anymore. So this fourth aim of life is freedom from dharma, from kama, from artha. And so it's freedom to not follow that dharma that society's uh, kind of laid upon you. So it's it's kind of like you don't have to have a purpose in life. You you're free to do whatever purpose you want. And in my view, that's it's kind of like well, my dharma is to be free from dharma. <laughs> yes, right. And ultimate freedom in in the Eastern sense, right, is freedom from all of the pain and pleasure of life and total liberation from the cycle. Yes, to free yourself from samsara and from suffering. And dharma is one of the causes of, of samsara and suffering. So, so I would prefer not to have to actually have a dharma. <laughs> and that's my dharma. Okay, well, uh, a minute ago you mentioned that there was, you referenced this push and pull between what society um, asks of us and what we are exposed to also in society in terms of agency and free will and, and choosing. There's mm -hmm. another kind of parallel to the push and pull and the yoga practice, which um, is sometimes referred to as yang and yin. Now, you are known mm -hmm. as being an expert in yin yoga. Can you give us a little primer on what distinguishes yin yoga as you practice and teach um, compared to what you see out there uh, in the yang side of yoga practice? Sure. And just right at the top, I, I still do yang forms of yoga too. You can't do just one. Mm -hmm. But like I said with Dharma, it's useful to define our terms. And if we define yin, you also have to define yang. It's like two sides of a coin. You can't just have one side. You can't have heads without tails. Right. So yin and yang are relative terms. Nothing's absolutely yin. A lot of people think that yin is hot. But if I asked you, is hot water yin or yang? You really can't answer that question. You have to say relative to what? Relative to boiling water, hot water is actually um, yang, uh, sorry, yin, but, but you know, the hot water is yang, but relative to say ice, hot water is yang and ice is yin. So you always need some sort of context to put these things into perspective. Yin are things that are 
relatively lower, cooler, denser, darker, more interior, more hidden, more mysterious, more feminine, more passive, more plastic. Yang, in contrast, usually refers to things that are higher, brighter, hotter, more exterior, more superficial, more masculine, more elastic, more dynamic. And so we, we need both of these things. You can't always just be on one side of the coin. A lot of our yoga practice, in terms of the postural practice, tends to be fairly dynamic. It's very muscular. It's fairly active. And there's a complement to that. There's something that we need to do to balance that. That's more interior, more slower, more deeper. Um, so you kind of need both. And that comes to a whole spectrum. At one level, you can say restorative yoga is very yin-like compared to ashtanga. And that's very yang-like. But is Ashtanga different than, say, Bikrams? Well, Bikrams in a, hotter, in a heated room. Ashtanga, you don't necessarily heat the room up to 105 degrees, so it's a bit more yin-like compared to Bikram. Restorative yoga is you know, very, very yin-like compared to even what we call the normal yin yoga practice, which I would differentiate it as yoga, quote, PG for Paul Grilly. The, the style of practice that Paul developed and taught me and others is not restorative yoga. That's even more yin-like. Mm -hmm. So in, in the practice that I was taught from Sarah Powers and Paul Grilly and, and practice on my own, it's really one that targets the yin-like tissues of the body. These are the deeper connective tissues that includes the ligaments, the tendons, the joint capsule, the, the fast fascial networks of the body, as opposed to the more yang tissues, which are the muscles. Now, we need both. We need to exercise all tissues to be healthy. But the yang forms of practice, the vinyasa flow, and these type of practices are much more yang-like. They're targeting more the strength and mobility of the yang tissues. But we need to also work these other deeper tissues, too. And a safe way to work those is through yin-held stresses. A yang stress is rhythmic, repetitive. That's what muscles love. A yin stress is something that's slower, long-held, a bit more passive not quite so dynamic. Uh -huh. so I've just offered a lot there. I'm, I don't know if you want me to unpack it a bit more or where to go from that. No, I think, th I think that's a great foundation from, from which to build. Uh, and even as you're kind of going through the relative scales, like comparing Ashtanga to Bikram, you know, I, my gut reaction is like, oh, those are both young practices. But if you unpack those deeper, you can look at specific elements. You know, Ashtanga has a lot of dynamic movement. You're going through that vinyasa sequence of the Chaturanga Dandasana, up dog, down dog, pretty quickly, one breath per movement. But in Bikram, even though it's hotter, so the temperature, you know, is is more on the yang side compared to Ashtanga. In Bikram, you hold the posture static. It's more of a Hatha style. Yes. So in that sense, the Bikram's more yin. So I, I like the way that you added some complexity to this this um, uh, spectrum that might have a tendency for us to see it black and white. Yeah, a good example of that is a cup of coffee. The blackness is yin, but the heat of the coffee is yang. Mm -hmm. So nothing's absolutely yin or yang. You can always find you know, parts of it, which is, if you think of that Taoist uh, Taiji symbol, the two sort of swirls, often called fish, there's a white fish swimming against the black fish. But even in the white swish, fish, there's a black dot. Right. And in the black fish, there's a white dot. That it symbolizes that nothing's absolutely yin or absolutely yang. Mm -hmm. Life is always a mix and one turns into the other. I can think of a baseball player. It's a playoff season now for American baseball. The pitch that the pitcher throws is yang, but the receiving, the catcher's mitt, is yin. And so on that one action, you have yang and yin. Right. Inextricably linked. Yes. Okay. Can't have one side of a coin. <laughs> Yeah, another way to put it. Um, you also mentioned, um, and something that you know raised an eyebrow for me, which I'm exploring right now, is you said um, that yin, the yin practice, as you learned from Paul Greeley, you know, is sustained stress. Let's talk about yeah. the idea of stress. I know this is a topic that you've um, written about and and vocalized your opinions about quite a bit. Um, so I know some people think of yin and think of that restorative practice where all stress is to be avoided. It should be totally relaxed and comfortable, no stress on the body whatsoever. Talk to me about right. that and um, where you stand. Yeah, I do try to rehabilitate the term stress 
and it's uh, it's an uphill battle. I can tell you a lot of people are saying, just just drop it. Don't you say load or something else? But, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's good stress and there's bad stress. Good stress is called you stress. EU stress. Bad stress is called distress. So most people, when they think of stress, they only think of the bad form of stress, the distress. And yeah, that, that's negative. We don't want that. That can actually wear out tissues and degenerate the tissues. But with no stress comes no health. In, in the science world, in medicine, there's a, a very popular graph that shows up over and over and over again. It has the shape of the letter N. So it's called the N-shaped curve. And we see this in all sorts of modalities. In the middle of this N, it's kind of like the Goldilocks position. And if you imagine on the vertical axis going up, the y-axis, that's health. The higher up you go, the healthier you are. On the horizontal, the x-axis is stress. Now, if you go too far to the right, too much stress, you're in distress, the body decays and you have very little health. But if you go too far to the left and there's no stress, then the body atrophies and there's no health. So we have to think of this N-shaped curve. And what we're really looking for in our yoga practice is to optimize health, not to maximize performance, but not to minimize stress either. A lot of athletes, gymnasts, dancers, they're in a competitive world and they have to get the maximum they can out of their body to compete. But that comes at a cost. They're not getting optimal health. They're trying to get maximum performance. Well, that puts them into distress. On the other hand, you got the couch potatoes who can sit eight hours a day at work on a computer, come home and sit another six, seven hours a day watching TV. They're also into distress because they're not stressing their tissues enough at all and their body's atrophying. So they need to get up and walk. The dancers and gymnasts, they need to back off a bit and balance. So we want to find somewhere in the middle, some Goldilocks position where there's not too much stress, but there's not no stress either because no stress is a recipe for ill health. One of the ways that you've articulated this in the past is through um, a concept uh, called anti-fragility, which was actually coined by a philosopher. The name is escaping me right now, but I'm, I'm sure you know. Um, Yes. Please. Nassim Talib. Thank you. Nassim Talib. Please explain that concept um, and use the foundation that you just set, because I think that this is a really useful way to conceptualize it that really stuck with me. Yeah. This is a wonderful concept. And I think Nassim Talib introduced this word just after the 2008 financial crisis. He kind of predicted the crash. Because he noticed he was a, a quant, which is a quantitative analysis in the financial world. He was noticing that banks were consolidating and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But as they got bigger, they became more fragile. And they became this term, too big to fail. And when they failed, not only did they crash, but they crashed the whole economy for many years. So you can get to be big and fragile. What he termed is that living organisms are actually anti-fragile. Now, to unpack that a little bit, imagine you've got a, a porcelain figure. My mother used to collect, collect these things called hummels, and she had these little cute little boys and girls sitting on a bench made of porcelain. Those are fragile. If they fell off the table onto the ground, they would shatter. But imagine if you had that same figurine, but it was cast in bronze. That's robust. If that bronze figurine fell on the floor, it would just bounce. It's not going to be fragile. But humans or living organisms, we're anti-fragile. We gain from chaos. We gain from stress. Now, if you were machines like a car, your car brakes wear out over time. Your computer keyboard wears out over time. They are fragile. With enough stress, they'll break. But living organisms, as you exercise them, as you stress them, they become stronger and healthier. So the opposite of fragile is not robust. Robust is kind of in the middle of the spectrum. The opposite of fragile is anti-fragile. In living organisms, if you graph this out, we need to have a load. We need to stress the tissues to prevent them from atrophying and decay to being fragile. So another way of thinking of this is not like a Goldilocks curve, which is an N-shape, but rather a ramp. The more you stress the tissues, the healthier it gets. The more you stress it, the healthier it gets to the top of the ramp, in which case you hit that critical edge, and you're more stressed, and now it breaks. Because everything has a limit. Humans have a limit, even that bronze cast um, little statue would have a limit if you put in a blast furnace it would melt but the question is where is your limit where's your ultimate edge we want to get kind of close to that edge without going over it right now if you happen to be injured that edge may be very close to your origin 
you, know, you, you may not be able to tolerate too much stress before you go too far. So when you're injured or you got a condition or disease or you're just getting older, you have to pay more attention to make sure you're not approaching the edge and then learn to back off. But to say no stress, that's going to guarantee atrophy. And that last part really is the rub, right? Is the edge is not fixed. Mm-hmm. So as you know, if we are embracing our anti-fragility and using stress as a tool to increase our health, it's actually going to push that edge further away over time, correct? Right, right. You build, and this is, we know this in the exercise world. If you are fairly weak and your doctor says, you know, you're getting older, you've got scarpopenia, or sorry, sarcopenia, which is a reduction of muscle mass or osteopenia, which is a reduction of bone mass. She's going to say to you, you know, get weight, lift some weights, swing some kettlebells. Well, the first time you do it, you're not going to be able to get very far. But you do it again and you do it again. And suddenly your muscles are getting stronger and stronger because you're adding more weight. You're adding more stress. If you just always kept doing the same weight, you're not going to get any stronger. You'll quickly plateau. So you have to keep adding stress to a point. You can try to lift too much weight and hurt yourself. So you got to find that, that place in there where you're growing, but you're not in danger of hurting. I think this is a big piece of advancing, and I use that word with air quotes around it, advancing a yoga mm-hmm. practice. A lot of people are looking for you know, the more um, spectacular postures, but to me, someone who has an intermediate to advanced yoga practice is someone who has internal awareness over what is uncomfortable and is the proper level of stress mm-hmm. versus what is pain or indicating that they're on that edge endangering themselves. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have a set of LEDs on our forehead that tell us when it's too close <laughs> and it'll go red or orange and then red. So the only real metric we can do is what are you feeling? Right. Does this feel painful? And a lot of type A yogis, A for Ashtanga, because that's kind of where I started, you know, we just kept wanting to go further, go further, go further. And pain was just you know, something you got to deal with. It's, it's on the path, you know, practice and all is coming. Yeah. Well, no, pain is there for a reason. It's your body's way of telling you something's not right here. You got you to gotta back off, slow down, do something differently. But in my early days of yoga practice, I kept ignoring the pain. And it reminded me of when I was about 17, 18, I had my first car, which is a 1958 Volkswagen. It was okay, but it had this one annoying feature and it had this engine light that kept coming on, red glowing light. And so I finally fixed it by putting masking tape over it until the car broke down on the highway and I had to get it towed away and jumped. <laughs> But that's what we tend to do in yeah. life. We, we mask the pain. We ignore those signals. We take ibuprofen or something uh-huh. so I can just keep doing what I'm doing. So as you said, we have to have this introspection to figure out, well, why am I feeling pain? What's it trying to tell me? And many people have no idea what pain even is. So I have to educate them. You know, anything that's sharp, burning, stabbing, tingly, electrical, these are not good signs. Something's not right. Back off or come out or take a few more days off and let yourself heal. It's not always more, more, more. This is good. Um, do you have any more? Well, because where I'm going immediately with this is how do you learn to differentiate between the two? And I know that there's one path, which is probably not the ideal one, but it will certainly teach you is when you go too far and you get injured. That teaches you, okay, I remember the feeling before that. So I'm going to try to not do that again. But you started to kind of describe the sensation of pain that's dangerous. Can you contrast that to the sort of discomfort that we should be, um, you know, confident in? Yeah, this is kind of a big thing because you got the the type A people, and I include myself in there because you know I've I've broken my knees, I've torn my meniscus by doing yoga without paying attention to yeah. the pain. So I kind of learned the the hard way. Yeah. But in professional sports and gymnastics and dance, where it's a very competitive world, you have people hurting themselves all the time, and that's okay. That's part of their their profession. They just heal up and they go back and push themselves to the edge. And in, in that environment, that may be okay, as long as people are consciously making that trade-off. You know, this pain may affect me. I may not be able to walk when I'm 60, but right now when I'm 20, I'm going to do this as long as I can. But most people don't come to yoga for that. If your intention is optimal health, forget maximum performance. Forget third series, second series. Start to ask yourself, what's your intention? Why are you doing yoga practice? And most people aren't doing yoga practice to be able to put their foot behind their head. There's no health benefit 
to Dwipada Shasana or Akhipada Shasana, getting one foot behind your head. That doesn't help you live better or longer. It just helps you get into that pose. If your intention is to optimize your health, then you just want to play that edge. You want to get up to kind of the top of that ramp, but no further. And as you get closer to the top of that ramp, that's when you're going to get these little warnings. Things. I call them little tweaks. And if you ignore the little tweaks, they become big tweaks. And then big tweaks become injuries. And with injuries, from operations and time off work, you can't go to yoga studio. Studio has to lay off yoga teachers. It's bad for the economy. So don't ignore these little tweaks before you start to screw up the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your <laughs> ego can get too big to fail. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I like to say, don't let your ego write checks your body can't cash. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay, um, I want to ask you a question that uh, you will know what I'm talking about, but I'd like you to kind of tell the story to to bring it to life. Okay, what mm-hmm. is the difference between a doctor and a pilot? Okay, I was asked this question by a wonderful teacher and writer named Bruce Lipton. He wrote a book most people have heard of called The Biology of Belief. And he asked me that question, what's the difference between a doctor and an airplane pilot? And as soon as he asked me the question, about 50 things popped in my mind. But before I could, I could offer any of them, he, he explained a little bit. He said, you know, by law, an airplane pilot, before she can fire up the engines and taxi the plane away from the, the terminal, has to go through a whole checklist of things. It used to be on a book, now it's on an iPad of some sort. But they have to go through all these things before they can start to fly the plane. And also by law, according to the Canadian Medical Association and the American Medical Association, every time you see your doctor, he has a list of questions he's supposed to ask you as well. But, you know, most doctors, they only have 10 minutes with you, so they don't bother asking all those questions. They just get right down to the, to the main nitty-gritty. And then Bruce asked the question again. Now, what's the difference between an airplane pilot and a doctor? We'll pause with the drum roll. The airplane pilot is on the plane with you. Now, you think about that for a moment. The airplane pilot's on the plane. It's in her best interest to go through that whole checklist of things. The doctor is not on the plane with you. Now, I'm not saying doctors are cavalier or anything. I think maybe I've been lucky, but every doctor I've ever had, I really felt they had my best interest at heart. But still, they're, they're not on the plane with you. Doctors are like ground control. You're up there flying your plane by yourself. And the doctor may know more than you, but you have to take responsibility for landing that plane. You have to make sure the decisions you make are the ones that are going to be appropriate for you and your situation. So your doctor, your accountant, your lawyer, your yoga teacher, all these people are ground control. They may know more, but they're just advisors. You're flying the plane. And this comes into play as a yoga teacher, because often I'll get students come up to me and say, well, I've got this condition or that condition. What should I do? And early in my teaching career, my ego wanted to play Dr. Yogi. And I would know a thin little bit about what they're talking about, like osteoporosis. Okay, that means the bones are getting weaker. We got to stress the bones more. But now I realize, well, first of all, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. And even if I was, this is not a clinic. If I was really a therapist working with you, I'd want to spend half an hour or more to get to know you. What is your biography? What's your biology like? How did this happen? What are you doing about it? You can't just go in and use the yoga studio and the drop-in class as a therapy session. It's totally inappropriate, plus I'm not trained for it. So rather than take that responsibility now as a teacher, I'd rather put it back on the student. You're flying the plane. You're the one with osteoporosis. What are you doing about it? What have your advisor said? What have your doctor said? What your physical therapist said? And, you know, maybe I can give you some suggestions that might help, but you have to check in. It's your body. You have to figure out, is this working? Is it hurting? Is it making me better? And it's going to take time to show up. It won't be in one pose. So you're really going to have to make that commitment to learn how to fly your plane. Absolutely. So to me, a yoga teacher, we're flight instructors. We'll hopefully we'll teach you how to fly your plane, but I can't fly the plane for you. I think this is so important to remember as students. Um, and it kind of gives you a little bit more peace of mind when you go to one class with one teacher and they tell you something totally contradictory to what another teacher has told you in the past. It's not that either person is necessarily wrong, but you have to be the one to take accountability for what you're going to integrate, what you're going to apply. And um, we have all of these 
impressions out there. It's the age of Aquarius. You know, we have Google at our fingertips yeah. to find all the information in the world. So what do we do with it? Well, that's where it comes down to your self-jurisdiction. But I also think this is really important for yeah. those listening who are teachers. Um, you know, where do we draw the line? Where do we offer advice? And where do we decline to to comment based on knowing what's out of scope? Do you have advice for teachers listening on how to operate? Yeah, and this, this is always a bit of a challenging one. Whenever I do the uh, teacher training programs, uh, students will often kind of get stuck with this whole idea because they've been taught a fairly aesthetic approach to their teaching. And by aesthetics, I mean how a student looks in the pose is the most important factor. Like where should the knee line up with the toes over the second toe or the third toe? How much should the back foot be turned in in warrior pose? Where should the hands be in down dog? How far apart should the feet be in mountain pose? There's all these aesthetic cues, which is designed to have every student look like every other student. But from a functional point of view, if the intention is to create a stress in a particular area of the body, like I want to stress the hamstrings or I want to strengthen the upper body muscular, then how a person looks in the pose is irrelevant. What's important is what is the student experiencing the pose? So one of my mantras that I adopt in my teaching, which I try to have other teachers share as well, is asking the student, what are you feeling? I have an intention when I put a student into a pose. Say, say I put them in the down dog. And maybe today it's a precursor to doing arm balance and I want to wake up and warm up their upper body muscularly, the shoulders and the arms. So that's my intention. That's why I'm putting them in down dog. That doesn't dictate exactly where the hands should go, where the hands are pointing out or inward, or where the shoulders should be. I just want them to kind of work on warming up those things. But it's certainly I don't want pain in the shoulder. So if I see somebody struggling in the pose, the first thing I'll do to them is not tell them where to put their hands, but I'll ask them, what are you feeling? And most students, they have no idea. <laughs> we're not trained yeah, yeah. to look inside. <laughs> you know, we're trained to mask. We're trained to put masking tape over that damn engine light. We're trying yeah, to there take we go. Fixed. so we don't feel the pain. So when I ask them, what are they feeling? Generally, they miss hear my question. They say, fine. <laughs> Thanks uh, for asking. Yeah. I smile and say, well, that's, I'm glad you're feeling fine, but that's not what I asked you. I asked, what are you feeling? And they'll just look off in the distance blank. They have no idea. So I'll say, well, we're kind of warming up the shoulders here. So do you feel anything in the shoulders? And they'll kind of look off in the distance and go, yeah. So, well, what are you feeling there? Well, you know, there's some strength, there's some stress. Do you feel any pain, pinching, anything like that? No, then, then they're fine. I'll leave them alone. But if they were feeling pain there, then I might say, okay, try externally rotating the arms a bit. Does that change it? Try moving the hands a little bit wider. Does that change it? Maybe you walk your feet in a bit closer or feet a bit further away. Does that change it? So I'm not judging from aesthetics. I'm judging from what their experience is. And the most important thing to teach them to fly their plane is they have to know what they're feeling. They have to learn how to intercept, to feel their own body. So at first, you're going to have to be very gross. Do you feel anything in your shoulders? Yeah. Then they won't know what it is. But then you'll have to go deeper. Now, is it deep? Is it superficial? Is it radiating? Is it in one place? Does it throb? Is it hot? Is it cold? So you'll start to build the vocabulary. These are all part of the flying lessons that you got to give your student so that they learn how to do down dog on their own. Very cool. I like that. Um, you know, you mentioned a little earlier that you had had a background in Ashtanga and ended up hurting your, you tore your meniscus. I'm interested in how your personal progress or excuse me, your personal practice has progressed over time. Um, if yeah, you don't mind sharing, how, how did that no. happen? And then what, how did you recuperate from it and adjust your practice moving forward? Well, it's, I started the physical practice of yoga in my 40s. I've been doing meditation since my early 20s, but it wasn't until the 40s that I started to add the physical modalities to it. But in my 40s, I realized I was kind of bringing a teenage mentality to it. I hurt my knees before I even did Ashtanga. That was just okay. in my first year, I decided I wanted to learn to meditate in lotus pose because a lot of meditators would meditate in lotus pose and hurt their knees. That was part of the practice, so we just did that. And then <laughs> after that, after I broke, tore both meniscus, I would bug all the teachers I could come across to see if there was a yoga way to, to, to fix it. I remember, yeah. um, David, sorry. <laughs> I remember one teacher, uh, David Williams, who 
was the first guy to bring Patabi Joyce to North America. He famously mm -hmm. once said, yoga will cure any problem except for those caused by yoga. So you know, yoga uh. <laughs> broke my meniscus and yoga was not going to fix my meniscus. So I had to get the arthroscopic surgery to fix those. And then about two years after that, I started to do Ashtanga and I fell in love with it. It was much more challenging than the Shivananda style that had been introduced to. It was sweaty. It was hot. It was muscular. And I did that for about five years. I took a couple of trainings with David Swenson and Tim Miller, and I really, really loved it. But once I hit my 50s, I discovered Ashtanga didn't love me anymore. I, I couldn't do the practice as much. I was burning out. I was getting neck pain from the headstands. And so eventually I started to slow it down. But it was at that time that I came across Paul Grillian and Sarah Powers. And I got introduced to the inside and I realized I had been missing that. I was just doing this hot, you know, very tapas type thing, uh, very pitta if you're into the doshas. And I was just burning myself out six days a week. So when I started adding the yin, paradoxically, it slowed me down, but it actually got me further into the practice of my yang practice more quickly. There is one particular pose in Ashtanga, which is a wide leg forward fold where you bring your head to the floor. Prasarita Padasanasana. Five years. Hey, yes. The first one. I couldn't get my head to the floor after five years of six days a week. But after three months of yin yoga, my head was on the floor. And that's when wow. I realized, wow, you know, what, what stops us mostly in range of motion are the yin tissues, the fascia, more than the muscles. Mm -hmm. And the yang practice is great at working the muscles and making them stronger. But the yin practice, if your intention is to get more range of motion, the yin practice will give you that faster than the yang practice. So that's when I started to really do both. I was doing yin and yang. But as I said, I kind of got out of the Ashtanga world because I was just burning out. So I, I still like the nyasa. But I started to realize as I hit my late 50s, I had to change again. And now my, my philosophy is that for optimal physical health, you kind of have three modalities you want to work. Endurance, strength, and mobility. So for endurance, now I, I found that in my Ashtanga practice, I kind of hit a plateau. The first year I did it, it just killed me. I was sweating like crazy. I was out of breath. But after a few years, I kind of plateaued, and I, I found it wasn't very aerobic anymore. So now for my, my endurance practice, I run sprints. So about two or three times a week, I'll go out and run sprints and get my heart rate up. For strength training, I'll do resistance training. I'll swing kettlebells and deadlifts and squats. And then for mobility, that's my yin practice. I get on the floor and I just do these long-held static stresses. And I feel in this way, now all three of these are yoga. Running can be yoga. Yoga is not what you do. Yoga is how you do what you do. Mm -hmm. It's the mindfulness, the awareness you bring to the practice. So weight training can be yoga. Running can be yoga. And of course, yin, just working on mobility and range of motion on the floor, and that's also yoga. So my yoga practice has evolved now to paying attention and having an intention. So my intention one day is endurance. I pay attention. How am I doing? Another day it's strength, paying attention. How am I doing? Another day is mobility, paying attention. How am I doing? So my intention is combined with attention. Yeah. And, and just as running or weightlifting can be yogic, doing asanas can be totally unyogic with the yeah. with a lack of attention, awareness, or intention. Um, so I think you're you're yeah. So many people right do you know, asanas as fitness. The, the modern postural practice of yoga and asana practice has just become a fitness routine. Mm -hmm. And, for many people, not for everyone. And, um, you know, to bring it back to this framework of anti-fragility that you spoke on earlier, when you were practicing Ashtanga and at a certain point, it no longer became an endurance challenge for you. Would you say, I mean, is that basically because you built your edge to a certain point where doing the same routine actions was no longer challenging that edge? I guess so. You, you kind of develop when you do anything over time. Yeah. I remember my first year of doing yoga, I was, as I said, I kind of came from a Shivananda tradition. My first teacher was a, a woman named Shakti Mai, who was living here in Vancouver at the time. Um, I wouldn't say she was training me in the classical Shivananda, because she, although she was Shivananda trained, she developed her own unique style. But it wasn't a lot of vinyasa. It wasn't a lot of heat. It was a lot of slow flow, mobility, mindfulness, Zen type qualities to it. Mm -hmm. But I came across a, a video, I was going to say DVD, but back then it was a VHS. That's how long ago this was, by a guy named Rod Stryker. And it was a yoga challenge video. And the first time I did it, oh, man, that kicked my butt. 
It was, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe how hard it was. A few years later, after I got into Ashtanga, I did that DVD again, and I couldn't believe how trivial it was, how easy it was. <laughs> yeah. So clearly, yeah. I you know I'd gotten to a different level in my practice. But you get to these plateaus, and maybe if I'd gotten into the second or third series of Ashtanga, it might have been different. But I didn't have the physical bones to to do those advanced poses. And primary series was good enough for me, but I, I kind of peaked. I, I wasn't getting as as out of breath. I wasn't getting any stronger. You know, you're just working with your own body weight, so that's kind of fixed. So right, it's fixed. I really did, yeah. And uh, as I heard one teacher say, your own body weight's probably too little for your legs and too much for your upper body. So it's kind of a compromise in there. So for upper, for mm. for lower body, you want to kind of add the deadlifts and the squats. For upper body, you want to make sure you're not overdoing it and hurting yourself. Right. Right. It, perhaps if you had started supplementing your practice with the the yin elements that you found later, then the mobility would have been there for you to go into second series or third series. But, um, you know, things unfolded the way that they did and you've got a practice that works for you now that, and sounds like you're happy with it. So that's great. Yeah. There's, there's ages and stages. There's a, a practice that will work well for you in your twenties, but don't count it in your forties and there'll be something different in your sixties. Mm-hmm. And that, that's fine. We all follow the arc of aging where we lose certain things, but we can gain other things. Did you face any resistance from other people when you moved away from Ashtanga and started uh, touting the benefits of a, a slower practice? I didn't face resistance per se because I was kind of teaching it in a different place. When I first started teaching yin yoga here in Vancouver, nobody had heard about it before. This is back in 2003. Paul Grilly had only been to Vancouver once many years before. And so we... The, the woman, uh, Shakti Mai, that I was teaching at her studio, Prana Yoga and Zen Center, she didn't really want to put the name Yin Yoga on the schedule because nobody knew where it was. Mm-hmm. So I was just teaching a half the class, but the first half of the class, I would teach Yin Yoga, and the second half, I would teach the normal sort of part. And the people who loved Yin Yoga, they remember the first part. The people who hated it, hopefully by the end of the class, they forgot all about it because they remembered the end part. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of I kind of snuck it in there. I did teach it a little bit at the Extango studio that I was at, but, and some people resonated the fact that you could go further faster if you added this. So some people did come to it. So I didn't get a lot of pushback from it, but I did get a lot of pushback from other teachers who didn't quite understand it. Ah. In fact, I remember one time, one of the reasons the, the owner didn't want to put yin yoga on the schedule is because I was the only teacher kind of trained in yin yoga. And I was still had, had a day job that took me all over the world. So when I was gone, she had nobody to, to fill in for me. So very shortly after I started teaching yin yoga there, I had to fly away. So she took the class. And then the week after I came back and I asked the students, how was your practice last week? And they all looked at me kind of sheepishly and said, very different. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, Shakti was leading the class and she had us in warrior pose for five minutes. Uh, yeah. uh, okay. <laughs> she heard that yin was long held poses, but she didn't realize which poses non muscular poses. Yeah. <laughs> the floor poses where there's no muscular effort. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of people still have this idea that yin yoga is an inappropriate stress of the muscles or we're doing like a credit card thing to the ligaments. Like when I tell people yin yoga targets the joints, it freaks them right out. Okay. I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. I'm glad you're talking <laughs> about this. <laughs> Well, when you think of exercise, a lot of people think rhythmic, repetitive movement. Like you go to a fitness center, you want to work on your biceps, you got a kettlebell and you do three sets of 10 curls, you're moving. And the muscles love that. They're young tissues. They love that young type movement. And if that's what we were doing to our joints, you'd be right to freak out. Because imagine taking a credit card and bending it back and forth over and over again. You know, after a few months of that, the credit card's just going to break. And if that's what you're doing, say, to your wrist or to your back ligaments, if you're doing that over and over again, that's going to be very destabilizing for those tissues. But that's not a yin form of exercise. In a yin practice, we're applying attraction to the tissues. And when I use the word traction, a lot of people relax because they've heard of traction. Traction is a long-held static stress. It's not credit carding. <laughs> that's what you need to do to stimulate the cells inside the fascia and the ligaments and the tendons to turn on and make those tissues thicker and stronger. Not movement, but long-held stress. So in yin, time is more important than intensity. You don't want to go to the maximum. Again, remember that Goldilocks curve, that Mm -hmm. N-shaped curve. 
Never go to the maximum. There's no health benefit to that. Find a place where you can linger longer and just be there. And that's why yin yoga is really not so dangerous because you're not going to the maximum range of motion and you're not dynamically moving the tissues. You're just letting it soak in. You're just letting yourself marinate in this pose and you're paying attention. If it feels dangerous, come out. If it feels painful when you come out, next time remember that. You might have held too long or gone too deep. If it hurts the next day, you got to think back. Okay, what was I doing? Maybe I was doing too much. So again, you have to pay attention. But the intention in yin yoga is long-held static stress with the muscles relaxed. Yeah, something that I've heard um, other yoga teachers say before is, well, you don't want to stretch your ligaments, tendons, these soft tissues, um, or the, excuse me, the harder tissues, because they, once stretched, do not have elasticity and they won't return. And this is going to cause adverse effects on the body. But if I'm understanding you correctly, then what you're saying is through the long static holds, we are affecting the harder tissues, but it's at once creating mobility and strength. Yeah, and I'm not really sure where this idea came in the yoga world that ligaments and tendons and joint capsules don't stretch. They do stretch. They're designed to stretch. They must stretch. So I'm, I'm always baffled by where they came from. And I know it's just kind of telephone whispers. Yeah, because I think so. Because in my yoga career, I had the same thing. I heard this from somebody, so I said it to my students. But when I actually tried to track it down, I couldn't find out where it came from. Think of your probably the most stiff ligament in the body is your IT band, the iliotibial band, which isn't strictly a ligament, but it's a strip of fascia on the outside of the leg that is so strong it can lift a car up without snapping. But even that one does stretch a little bit. A study I just saw last year shows that the IT band stretches about one and a half percent. Tiny, but that's an important part of being a human who walks and runs. Because as you bring your leg backwards, that you're putting a little bit of a spring or a stress into that IT band, and as the leg comes forward, it's springing forward. Hmm. You think of the hamstring tendons or your Achilles tendons or the back muscles, these things are elastics. Your, your Achilles tendon can stretch 4 to 5%. And that's what makes us the leaping primate. The monkeys, chimps, apes, they can't jump. We have the same type of elasticity in our Achilles tendons that kangaroos and gazelles have. And when you dorsiflex your foot, you're actually stretching that spring. Now, imagine you had a very stiff spring and you stretch that half an inch. When it releases, there's going to be a lot of energy snapping back there. Mm -hmm. If you had a very loose spring and it just easily stretched it, when you release it, you're not going to get much recoil. So we're designed, our, our tendons, our ligaments, our fascia is tuned to give us this elasticity that allows us to move and to run. So this idea that we shouldn't stretch these tissues, it's just it's wrong. But having said that, what we're trying to do in yin yoga is stress the tissues. And again, I come back to that word stress. I don't care if they stretch or not. We're trying to put a stress into them because once these tissues are stressed, the cells that reside in the tissues, which build new tissue, they turn on. Mm. These cells turn on through a number of different chemical signaling processes. But one signaling process is something called mechanotransduction. Imagine a cell that's called a fibroblast, like a spider in a web. If you pull the web apart, the spider is feeling that and depending on the stress it's sensing, it's going to make more web. It's going to make the spider web stronger. So we need to turn on these little spiders in our fascia called fibroblasts or turn on the, the cells in our bones called osteoblasts or the cells in our, our cartilage called chondrocytes. These cells are listening to stress signals, mechanical signals. And when we turn them on like that, they actually say, okay, we've got to put down more whatever material, collagen or, or calcium hydroxide or some other thing that gets into the, the tissues to make them stronger. So yeah, we need to stress these tissues and they may stretch and that's okay. Essentially, stress is the precursor to resilience. We're stimulating the resilience of the body. Right. Yeah. You need to exercise all tissues, not just the muscles. And that stress may result in a stretch or may not. And as long as the stretch isn't past the threshold, I mean, you can stretch a muscle too much and you'll rupture it. You can stress a tendon too much and you'll rupture it. But we don't say you should never stretch a muscle. That's right. So I'm not sure why we're <laughs> saying you should never stretch a tendon. Yeah, you have to stretch tendons. Yeah, I think in fact, there's one, ten, uh, there's one ligament in our back called the ligamentum flavum, 
which means the yellow ligament, and it can stretch 50 to 60%. And when you do a forward fold, a flexion, it stretches that much. And when you do a back bend, it, re- it goes back to normal. Our ancestors, before they had elastic bands, they used to use this ligament in animals, dead animals, and they'd carve little loops out of it. And they were primitive elastic bands. These were the first elastic bands we had because this ligament was very stretchy. Wow. So again, this idea that ligaments aren't designed to stretch, it just is wrong. Well, I think they you're right that there's, stretch, they should stretch. there's probably an element, there's certainly an element of the game of telephone where the more you hear something, the more social proof you have to continue disseminating it. But it's good that we have mm-hmm. people like you who are doing the fact checking and, uh, and rooting their teaching in science. For those who are, well, then, you know, yeah. stimulated by this information and would like to learn more, what do you suggest? How can they um, study more either with you or through any other resources you recommend? Well, I've written a couple of books lately. I, I call it the Your Body, Your Yoga series. The first one was called Your Body, Your Yoga. And the first volume of that book talks about these tissues and the antifragility curve and how we need stress. Yes, you can have too much. You can always go too far. But that doesn't mean you should do nothing. So it, it impacts those things. And then we look at the variability in the human body. So the first book, Your Body, Your Yoga, looks at just the variability in our bones, in the, the hips and the legs, and why some people will never be able to bring their foot behind their head. Some people will never be able to do lotus pose. And that's just the shape of the bones, and that's okay. So there's that series of books. There's also my website, um, yinyoga.com. In my teacher training courses, even though it's focused on yin yoga, we go through all these different tissues because, again, to understand yin, you have to understand yang. So we talk about those as well. So um, links to my courses are listed there as well. Excellent. Um, I think now is a great time for us to move on to just the final section of the interview, which I call the prana round. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions and ask you to answer minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Okay, Bernie? Okay. All right. I'll try. Okay. First question, in one word, why do you practice yoga? Optimize, to optimize, optimize. health, wealth, gain. What's your favorite yoga pose and why? Ooh, no, you have to make me choose that. Yeah. Shavasana is my favorite. Opening meditation is my second. Why? Because it's what makes everything else we just did valuable. You need to stress, but then you need to rest. And it's in Shavasana that we integrate all the other effects of our practice. I love that. Uh, I'm with you. I love my Shavasana. Um, You said Shavasana was your first choice. What was the second choice? The opening meditation, centering, arriving. Ah, yeah, that's good too. (laughs) Okay, what is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a yoga teacher? Well, I have to go back to Paul Grilly and uh, his whole helping me understand my human variation, my own unique human variation. The question is, what are you feeling? What are you feeling? And you use it with your students now. Yeah, because that helps them to pay attention. So the teacher has an intention. And then we ask the student, what are you feeling? That helps them to pay attention to make sure you're getting the intention. Recommend one book, modern or ancient, for our audience. Of course, aside from your own, which will be in the show notes for the listeners. <laughs> Ooh, one book out of millions. Um, the one book that really influenced me lately, and it's not really well, kind of yogic, is "Free Will" by Sam Harris. Oh, okay. You know, I haven't I, I haven't read that book, but I did just read. Uh, his wife's book, which was called Consciousness. Consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a a quick one, but dense and very thought provoking. Right. They make an interesting couple. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. uh, Next question. Is yoga for everyone? There is a yoga for everybody, but there's no one yoga. Mm. Okay. And final question, how can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? Uh, They can get in touch with me through my website, yinyoga.com. There's a forum there where they can ask me questions or they can email me through that. Uh, Again, coming back to my dharma, I just love to share what I find fascinating. So this whole thing about human variation, nobody has your biography and your biology. If we can just get everyone to teach their students how to fly their plane, then they're, they're helping me in my messaging. 
Beautiful. Let's get everybody flying their plane with attention and intention. Thank you so much, you Bernie, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And it was awesome to speak to you. Well, thank you, Henry. And thanks for the invitation. It was fun. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye for now. Dharma Talkers, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me, at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. I'll speak to you next week, and until then, keep living your Dharma.